So have I been terribly uh, productive since we last talked? Well, I mean, we we dumped the last one rather judiciously, <laughs> so the folks at home have no idea what's going on. Well, I have actually. I um, set up. Um, I'm setting up project management within my company because we hated our project management system. So we're changing over to something else, as you know, because you got invited to the Slack. I so did. I'm trying to figure out how to uh, what project management system to use that will integrate with Slack. And my choices are something that looks really cool but is expensive or something that is a lot less cool um, mostly because it's more lightweight and uh, costs nothing. So I'm in a bit of a bind because I would have to cancel some of our other um, like the time tracker and stuff like that in order to get the uh, fancy project management thing and it just seems like such a big leap that I don't know. How many people you're working with now? Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Where our team is about five people, but if you include other side projects like Signal Flare, we have seven people. And if we pull Project Goliath in under our uh, the main thing, then there are uh, three mods, so I, we would have ten people. I assume this is all off the record. I thought you didn't want to mention any of those things by name. I think Project Goliath is fine, right? I think I think it's kind of a, you know, okay. Well, I, I was specifically right. thinking of Signal Flare, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're we're about to have to start talking to people about it, because um, I did, and then the election happened. It did. And how long were you incapacitated for that? Uh, well, that? I basically started working the day after. There you go. Way to go. Right, because I started, because like on Wednesday, on Tuesday, I fell asleep with my clothes still on in the wrong place in my house because I just like wasn't paying attention. I just like blanked out and just fell asleep. Then I uh, woke up and I immediately, like whenever there's an emergency, my response is to reach out to my network um and start building the network of relationships so i guess i was like holy shit everyone's gonna die like i'm particularly afraid for my trans friends obviously so i like freaked out and i was like how do i make sure that everybody has food and that everybody has protection and everybody can get jobs we all need jobs right now we're not going to have health care nobody's going to have health care or a job and we're all going to die so, <laughs> and I had lost faith in the ability of government to take care of our social needs at all, um, you know, especially on the federal level. And now, now that I've calmed down a little, I'm a bit more agnostic about it. Uh, but at the time, I was like, they told us that we were going to have incremental progress. But is it progress if the whole thing can be reversed in like a day? Like, no. That's not progress. That doesn't count. That's not building a safe and secure world for everybody. That's bullshit. Um, so I just want to do something that isn't. I you, you know I 
I don't want to sit here and advocate and for like specific seats in specific parts of the government or win and lose things or whatever. If other people want to do that, great. I'm going to support them. I am supporting them, you know, but, um, you know, I'm not into the faithless electorate thing. I think that's kind of silly. Well, it's good to see you've calmed down since then. Uh, I guess you're... <laughs> oh, man. No, I've been I've been receiving the posts from Project Goliath. That has uh, very much lived up to its ironic name by now. There are <laughs> way too many people posting way too many things in that, uh, in that little corner of the internet. This is so funny because early on, somebody was, had a conversation called uh, Why Goliath? And I just didn't answer any of the questions. That's I just reasonable. like watch people speculate about why it was called Roger Goliath, and it was beautiful and fun. Yeah, that's no fun. You don't you don't ever reveal stuff like that. It makes you seem more mysterious and beguiling than you may or may not be. The um, but you uh, you are the actual like progenitor of that project, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's your... what I did on Wednesday. Yeah, and this I is all it was... your fault. This... Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> everything that comes out of this is 100% on you. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was funny because your, your first response kind of totally suggests that. I, the first thing, your panic was to network. Yeah. That is, oh, that's such, that's such a strange response. Is it? No, probably it not. Sense. But it's, I mean, I guess maybe it's just talking about it in that way is insane sounding. <laughs> Yeah, so I woke up on Wednesday, I started reading some news, I got increasingly panicked, and then I was just like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. So then I was like, I'm just going to make a Facebook group, and I know Facebook is going to get shut down and we're never going to be able to talk to each other again, but whatever, for now, I'm just going to make sure everybody can meet each other so that people are safe. And uh, then I invited a ton of people, I have 150 new Facebook friends. Because it's a secret group, so if you want to get on it, you just friend me. It's just so many people, and talking to so many people. So, yeah, I expected it to be like 300, maybe 500 people. 500 if it did really well. But now we have almost 1,800. Yeah, it's grown significantly. I don't. I, how much of it do you think you actually keep up with? What? I read everything. Okay. So you do, you, you are spending, I mean, that has to be hours a day. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot it's, of there's a lot of news and not news flowing across that feed. Oh yeah, I don't read every article that people link to, but, but you read uh, all the commentary and that kind of stuff. Basically, all of it. If I think that if I feel like it's not a um, a problem, then I don't do it. And there are some people who I have passed off moderation of their comments and threads to other to other mods because I can't be objective in evaluating them. (laughs) (laughs) So it's grown into, it's grown into a mod structure. How much, how much planning have you put in, in the days since starting project Goliath into its design? Um, a little bit right now, what we're doing is trying to figure out a way to structure, um, conversations on issues um, because I think that, uh, like, the problem with this this format, um, which is a chronological format, is that there's not a good history. And things like uh, Facebook searches 
Facebook's search function isn't good. Um, so I'm trying to think of ways to draw out what is really um, interesting and exciting or particularly good from the group. So I think one thing that we're going to do is make issue channels. And I think um, the part that I'm working on is trying to figure out how to frame it in an unconventional way that um, encourages more conversation and cross-pollination between different kinds of efforts and keeps us goal-focused. For example, no one should starve. We should stop building bombs. You know, like that kind of thing. So people can be on what they what they want. Um, everybody should be safe and secure. So that would cover like a lot of the police brutality, the uh, racial justice stuff and whatever. And it doesn't have to get caught up in the conventional political language around it. So we don't have to argue about like what the best way to deal with climate change is because we are at least starting from a place of agreement that, you know, they shouldn't blow the tops off of mountaintops and like pollute the rivers and like we all need an ecology that we can live in. Have you settled on the, uh, and I guess that that response sort of covers it, but in a more terse form, have you decided whether this is more grand, strategic, strategic, or tactical? Um, I think that what I want is to allow people to kind of execute on their tactical things because we want to create kind of long-term engagement. So a lot of people who have like a good idea or some kind of um, passion for the topic that they're involved in, like don't really have the skill set or the team that they need to execute on their idea. Um, and then a lot of people have skills that they want to contribute, but they don't have like a real idea of what they want to do and stuff like that. So it's, I do want to like make a quick, clear uh, work groups with um, a really simple project management structure. Like, Hey, here's how you, um, here's how you write a summary of the project, make a list of what needs to be done, make sure you're playing to people's strengths. And ultimately you as whoever the leader is have to expect to do everything yourself because people get sick. You know, they injure themselves in uh, classes and, you know, sometimes you just have to pick up what that person was doing and that is your job. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Um, But that sounds at least slightly more strategic. The organization of those groups you expect to go offline at some point, I assume. Yeah, yeah. So we're setting up, I I set up a Discord server for, um, for like with specific conversations but I'm trying to decide if I don't want to just have a Slack instead. I don't know. I'm going back and forth. I'm trying to decide how to. Slack is built for. But do you expect the projects that start, that get spun off under Project Goliath to actually spin off in such a way that you're they're not necessarily under your purview? Are you, are you facilitating that or are you trying to keep that banner? Is are you just trying to seed these projects or are you actually attempting to oversee them? It depends on what people need. Like some people do need more oversight and other people don't. And then we're working with some like existing national organizations that have done a lot of work in, in the direction of like engaging people to um, get more of them online so they can talk to people. And some, some of the best things that have come out of this so far have just been that like um, someone showed up and said, Hey, I would really like to be connected to a person who's working on single payer healthcare for in California. 
and uh, we managed to connect them to a person who's doing that through the group. And apparently they had a really successful meeting and they're in a good place and stuff like that. But then, um, so that has basically nothing to do with us after the connection is made, right? Uh, They're working with another organization. It's not connected to us at all. But um, there's also a group about uh, talking to conservatives. It's called Engaging Conservatives that spun off. I'm an admin of it, but that's kind of by accident. That's not because I'm really like involved in managing it. I hope I probably have to clarify that. Um, and so that's essentially its own own thing, but it it's not really affiliated with us, but it's, you know, um, it's mostly people from the project. So they have a similar kind of framework for talking to each other and things like that. Yeah. Then, um, then somebody did, um, one of my friends did a trans, uh, trans help project where, you know, they made a list of things that trans people are going to need for support in the next, uh, couple of years. And they're receiving like, um, they're connecting people directly with trans people who need their help. And, um, they did that like basically entirely through project Goliath. They like set it up basically entirely through project Goliath, but it's not affiliated with us in any way. So, um, but other people, like, I think if people want to write things or publish things, that probably makes more sense to do through Project Goliath, uh, like under the banner, because, um, you know, anything where you need visibility, it's probably better to do it through our group. Sure. Um, has anyone done that yet? Uh, no, we've been talking about it, but I would have to set up a publishing method and uh, ethos and platform because obviously I don't want to just totally publish all user submitted content. Um, if somebody posted, if somebody wanted to write something that was saying, um, let's do the faithless electorate thing, even though I think that's a bad idea, uh, I would still probably publish that. But if somebody was like, hey, here's why it's important to ban reproductive rights federally. I, w- I would not be willing to publish that. Um, if someone wrote a piece on sex trafficking that didn't distinguish between sex trafficking and sex uh, work, I probably wouldn't want to publish that. So, um, being a little, being at least a little careful, having a little bit of editorial control. How much of that do you exercise on the actual posts themselves? So the general belief is that, like, if somebody is posting it, that means that people believe it and care about it. Um, and so even if it's something that's incorrect, like factually incorrect or uh, politically incorrect, you're allowed to post it um, and we have a conversation about it. In practice, I've had to delete or close commenting on most of those posts because there are too many rules violations to keep up with. Sure. Um, I'm just curious what the fraction of the total is. Very, very small. Um, in terms of posts where I actively have to step in. Yeah. Like very limited. Okay. Um, and yeah, people, people mostly handle it themselves. Um, the only thing they do that is not um, is like people get mad at each other because they're passionate about what they're talking about. And then they go go right into personal attacks. But we managed to avoid a lot of it, like a lot of the um, the factionalism on the 
left. Like, I know, like, I've definitely seen plenty of anarchists and socialists. And I saw a couple of socialists of, like, different stripes just, like, hanging out and talking to each other. So um, that's that's pretty unusual, actually. And then there are a lot of Democrats. I did have people get mad at me for not um, for not being neutral in the exchange between Democrats and everybody else, because apparently, like, my having a position means that I don't facilitate Democrats enough. I mean, you could, that argument could come from anywhere. You just happen to get it in that particular direction. Yeah, I know. It was, but it was, that one was particularly funny to me because it was, um. Democrats are being very partisan right now. They're being very paranoid in a way that's totally not going to help them. I don't necessarily want to get into that, but, uh, it's a little worrisome just how violated they seem to feel about what happened in a completely unproductive way. Why don't we talk about that? Because I don't want the heartache of bothering to talk about it in public. I let other people take care of it. <laughs> it's it's annoying enough to watch it in action most of the time. I don't necessarily, I don't want to. Like that election cast I mentioned this on a couple days ago when I was talking to Jacob. I mean, just doing that election cast was enough to annoy the shit out of me through the election. Because it mm-hmm. it brought it to the front of my consciousness, and it was not worth the, it was not worth the loss in productive brain cycles. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I am kind of interested in it because I'm I'm interested in like political identity and belief formation and how those things are connected or not connected. Because it seems like most of the problem that they're having is that they feel like um, their identity as Democrats isn't being celebrated and it can't be celebrated Um, or like that it doesn't have value because people are saying like, hey, let's assume that we have we all share a pretty progressive platform, right, where we want things like um, getting rid of student debt and ending war and health care for everyone and those kinds of things. And that's what we care about. let's say that that's true um is working with the democratic party the best way to do that or is the democratic party in a position where it's so controlled by um outside interests that somebody within the party wouldn't really be able to make a difference and democrats are offended by that that question even if they're not involved in the party apparatus because it has more to do with the allegiance than it does to questioning and it's been interesting to handle that um overall because especially on the in the first couple days everybody wanted to blame somebody else for what happened yeah holy shit i could not i could not do anyway yeah keep going Uh, i everyone everyone felt that i'm sure i there's no way i'm alone in that but the amount of and the amount of finger pointing that's still going on i the, the number how many thousands of articles have to have been written by now (laughs) about the thing that lost Hillary the election or won Trump the election, as if there's a thing responsible for that is, yeah. Totally. The fake news bit is getting a little interesting, too. That I'm okay with following. I am fascinated with the notion of the way that fake news proliferates. My feeling is honestly that, like, the conversations I've seen on social media are no worse than conversations I've seen people have. 
in terms of how true they are, like how true the facts are that are being founding the basis of the argument. Oh, and sure. I think it's it's more social than media. People are trying to make it, uh, trying to put it on the level of media. For example, I once talked to a little Indian, um, like a Desi guy, this kid, right, who has friends with through my family. Uh, after uh, right when we were about to invade Iraq, right, and I was like, "Hey, so, so w- he was he was behind uh, the invasion of Iraq for some reason," and so I was like, "Hey, buddy, hey, little bud, like, why are you? Why do you think this is a good idea to invade Iraq?" And he was like, "Oh, I um, because Saddam Hussein told Osama bin Laden." to do 9-11 and i was like whoa well i don't really think that's true (laughs) you know i don't i don't really think that's how that happened and you know actually you know they're political enemies they're not like uh they're not like buds they're not like hanging out over there in the middle east being uh, like calling each other on the phone they're not like us dude that's what i was telling him look and the middle east is approximately five blocks it looks kind of like a decrepit <laughs> part of Brooklyn, except it's full of brown people. This is the Middle East. It's somewhere I will never go, because they don't let planes over there. This is, this is really much simpler than you're making it, Alicia. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know I have a tendency buds. to... Oh, yeah. I, I know I overthink these things. Yeah. Um, but, um, so it's like, so that how is, do you... That is, a great, that is a great conspiratorial point, though. <laughs> that there's like five bad people and they're all just in a room and one of them tells one of the other ones to do something. Yeah. So it's like, why, how do you know that's true? You know, like how, what makes you think that that's true? How do you know that you seem so sure about it? And he was like, Oh, because so-and-so's dad said this and so-and-so's dad is a, he's a good man. So it must be true. And I think that to some extent, that is how we evaluate things. Uh, like, weren't you texting me about this earlier today about tone that tends to skew your judgment? Yeah, I had mentioned there's a specific kind of tone that occasionally gets used on social media. And it's even more effective when it's used in no- news sources. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good at second guessing professional opinion on things. I learned that from visiting doctors. But the um, there's... It, there's this specific tone where people do this turnaround, and uh, the the closest I can do, I don't have an example in front of me, but it's the, but for real, this attitude, where you're like something, we're talking in what's theoretically conjecture, and then someone says, but no, for serious, this is, and for whatever reason, I automatically lend way too much credence to that. Like, it automatically sounds truer in my head when people talk that way. And I only noticed that like relatively recently. I don't I don't know why it took me so long to notice it. I think it's probably just because I'm on Twitter more often than I should be now. It gets used on Twitter a lot in replies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you ha- do you have any uh, particular <laughs> things that you're susceptible to from a rhetorical standpoint? I think like I am pretty willing to believe a conspiracy theory um, overall because. Um, you know, it only becomes a conspiracy theory when it's in private. In public, people conspire all the time, constantly. It's called doing business. Yeah. And um, so I believe that. And then also, you know, recently it had come out that the um, 
the FBI was really involved in uh, selling arms to the Black Panthers. Um, and uh, they did have a lot of... Um, they did have a, more than one like agent, like double agents in the Black Panther organization or around the Black Panther organization that was encu- encouraging it to become more militaristic. And um, there's there's strong evidence that that's true. Um, so if you look at like the history of conspiracy theories on the left, like um, that's when if even if you just like if you just straight up tried to learn the history of the Black Panthers, you would find that it's basically impossible. Yeah, um, I, there's there's no there's no way anything that is that level of. Basically, I, I mean, you talked about the FBI. I mean, how much of the FBI's mission, even 50, 50 years out, is entirely black and white? And it's an actual law and order organization with paperwork. So I can't even yeah. imagine what looking at an underground movement like that would be like. Yeah, so it's partly because people were being quiet because they were being infiltrated. Um, and then there's this nasty thing that still like exists in the left today where like any time somebody says something somebody's like you're a provocateur you're here to fuck us up you're definitely here to fuck us up i know i saw this i saw it and that is what you're doing so like no different um like a lot of times a different any difference of opinion gets kind of um thought of in that way um but i do think i'm susceptible to that especially if um I, I'm susceptible to believing that because I've seen so many um, instances in which people were like, come on, this is a ridiculous exp- conspiracy theory. And then it did turn out to be true. Um, Doesn't take very many of those happening to yeah. completely shake what is possible. Yeah, no, I agree yeah. with that. So I try to at least stay open and not like, and I'm, I think I'm worried that I'm going to shut down, um, something valid because it sounds crazy to me because I'm an elitist. And so I I kind of like stay too open-minded. And then the other thing I'm really susceptible to is like when people are really angry while they're talking and they're angry against a group I feel is wrong me, that fucking gets me like, um, the safety pin conversation. (laughs) You have the floor if you want it, but uh, I will. Provi- I, I will provide no comment on the safety pin situation. I'm well, compromised just... in that conversation. <laughs> My um. So I was talking to some different people, and one of the ideas that I heard was like, "Hey, you know, people wearing the safety pin, they want to participate in helping with, uh, you know, justice for people who are marginalized. So why don't we like go from the safety pin to like uh, racial justice groups or whatever, where we have conversations about like how we can support." Uh, people of color or, um, you know, LGBT people and whatever. And that that's really what I think is the best procedure. It's been an awesome conversation and um, they're doing some pilot programs and I think it's going to actually be really good. So that I think is a, the best possible approach to uh, to something that is as to a symbolic gesture that otherwise, you know, seems pretty meaningless. Um. I think my view on this has also been shaped by people who think it's dumb, like white people who are like, 
not interested in wearing a safety pin because they don't think people of color are in danger right now. And like that is a weird reason not to do it for me. So that was my first safety pin conversation was with a white person who was like, you're not in danger. So I don't understand why you need this. Um, this seems like a dick thing. Just Like that sounds like something you would lie about. Just no, for no, the no. purpose of saving, fa- <laughs> not you, the other person would lie about That's- just for the purpose of saving face. I've seen a lot of nice people who are like, uh, not exclusively white people, but just like people who really, their sense of security has been really threatened by this election. And they're having some illusions about the safety of the government challenged with things like the Bannon appointment. So they're highly motivated to say like, hey, this isn't all that bad. Um, this isn't actually dangerous. Um and I obviously think it is. I think even the loss of social service is dangerous. I think even if you're not a, um, if you're not an out and out like racist, like about to commit genocide um, and gas people and stuff like that, even just avoiding um, taking care of people who people of color when you're making decisions for the country is like a big deal. Like you know, Hurricane Katrina. Um, and like other situations where there are emergencies, if you if you overvalue white people compared to people of color, then you're going to make a mistake that that hurts people and it's unfair. Um, so, I mean, that's bad to happen anyway, regardless of who's in charge. But um, yeah, that's I've been I have to some degree been running that that counter campaign that you're talking about, which is interesting because. I, I'm not. I'm not walking around saying that ethnic minorities need not be concerned. But I'm also extremely skeptical of the amount of damage Trump is going to be capable of doing in his position, given how many enemies he actually has around him. Um, which most of, true. <laughs> like there's no one. No one wants him to be president, especially not the Republican Senate. I mean, listen to the way. Listen to the way Mitch McConnell talks about anything that Trump has proposed to do. He doesn't he doesn't want him there. The Republicans are going to spend his first term in office trying to impeach him to get Pence to be the president. They want Pence to be president. They have no problem with Pence. Uh, they Trump is going to forestall almost everything. He's already proven to be a complete waffler on everything. He's going to, by 90 days into this, when he realizes that he can't just like bankrupt and start again when something doesn't work, that's going to wear on him. I don't, th- I don't think he's going to do anything. I think he will be a lame duck presidency, which is not good, but it's not a disaster. Um, and the key, which that's why I like things like project Goliath, project Goliath, even though it was started in a fit of rage to some extent, what, <laughs> it, what it, what it symbolizes is the fourth pillar of government that we constantly forget between the elections, which is that the electorate has, some authority that they can exercise. It's not just the elected officials. And I think that will be a very positive outcome of all of this. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting because they do tend to like, I do think that there is like power in the people. And I do think that a lot of things that we need, we can organize and do for ourselves and that we don't need to be working with government in order to make that happen. Um, Obviously not everything. Obviously some things you need a, an insane amount of both funding and control 
to be able to accomplish, um, like making healthcare free or accessible is something that requires both funding and control, most likely. Um, things like environmental protections uh, do require funding and control. And I, I think on, on that level, on the level of those kinds of um, initiatives, it doesn't matter who the president is. I, um, I definitely agree. Environmental then, protection is the only one that I'm really honestly concerned about. Um, at this point. Our strategy right now is to try to figure out how to have conversations with state governments and like organize a like nationwide conversations with state uh, governments about more local environmental protections uh, because I do not think it's coming from the I think working to get the federal government to do that like the worst you could do is cripple people but we're not i mean you saw his transition speech right um trump's transition speech where he was essentially like yeah epa gone we'll see like he's gonna yeah. find he's gonna find out uh to use uh what's his name's analogy dan carlin's analogy he's gonna find that he doesn't know he doesn't know where the tools are in the drawers i think he's gonna have a lot harder time doing that than he thinks um I mean, think the fact that his entire cabinet is not already established by now suggests that he does not have enough people paying attention to the mechanics under light. He can't just say something. Someone has to be there to hear it. And no one's there. I honestly yeah. do think that is the saving grace of the Trump presidency is that he's he is in, he's known for 70 years where all the tools are. He knows where all the knives are in his own company. He does not know that in the U.S. government. And no one is there to help him. Steve Bannon does not know where any of that shit is either. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I do think a lot of uh, his toolkit, <coughs> his media toolkit, will continue to serve him in the presidency. Like, um, I think one of the reasons that he's so anxious to have his children involved in everything he's doing is that they're a part of his his team. And I think we'd be... You know, I think that when you commit that many crimes that publicly and you do that much seedy shit that openly, you were definitely um, able to put pressure on people to go along with it or to stay quiet about it or whatever, whatever the uh, process might be. And I think that's extremely doable in uh the context season also you know even what he was doing in the campaign uh publicly of being able to dismiss his opponents um in in the primaries of being able to dismiss and cut down his opponents um that's also a valuable skill for um maneuvering in a political context so i in that sense he has power he also has a great amount of symbolic power i don't think that uh the emboldening um white supremacists thing is a non-issue you know and no I, I think the i think the empowerment is a serious i think that cuts both ways in some yeah. ways but it's also no it's definitely it may be one of the strongest factors of his presidency is what he yeah. represents yeah and then i think finally like this country was in crisis before a, before trump was elected president like there's no drinking water in flint that is something that the government should do. That is that is something that government is theoretically responsible for, or we've come to kind of a 
semi-agreement that that's something that the government should do. And like that was a crisis before now. Police brutality has been a crisis for a long time, for a long time. You know, the Standing Rock protests are already happening. They're already blowing the tops out off of, uh, you know, mountains and polluting the rivers. Um, you know, people are already starving to death. People already, you know, still don't have health care. Um, and uh, access to reproductive rights isn't even across the country. You know, not everybody has um, access to safe and uh, safe and affordable abortions um, because of the way that or or even other kinds of forms of birth control, which is critical, you know. So it's like looking at it as like, well, how can Trump make the situation worse is almost like missing the the call of this election, which is to say, like, look at how things are right now this is not working what we're doing is not working and you'll notice though that that sentiment that you just i mean i i won't i wouldn't specifically disagree in meaningfully on those points but you'll notice that at the democratic national convention that that um was not entirely the consensus going around yeah yeah and, and if hillary had been elected that really still would have been the message is that everything really is kind of okay. Yeah. We all have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all have jobs and healthcare now. <laughs> yeah, all we got to do is fill out the paperwork, figure out what's wrong with Iran and everything will be good. <laughs> Aren't you a patriot? Do you not believe that we all have jobs and healthcare? I mean, I look That's around, I've got a job. Everybody I give a shit about as a job, it's it's probably fine. That's that, not true. For me. Yeah, that's yeah. been funny about this election for me is that everybody yelling at me about how, as a liberal, I don't understand poor white people, and that's like literally everyone I know is a yeah, poor white you, person. <laughs> you have a cadre of those people around <laughs> you. It's just me and a bunch of poor white people. Like, if I'm talking to somebody, there's, like, a 70% chance that they're queer, poor, and white. Uh, coincidence? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, definitely. That's pretty good. People tell you a lot of weird things. I've, I've been called any kind of... I've been accused of being a uh, fascist. Um, I, that one's easy. A, a Democrat, a Republican, people, people have been like, I've had definitely had conversations with people where they're like, wait, are you, are you a Republican, libertarian, anarchist, um, Look, communist, I, I, socialist? I, I, I'm going to say, and I think we've, I think you've mentioned this in passing before, but I'll just reinforce, you cannot listen to Alex Jones because I think you would really, really like Alex Jones. Uh oh, oh, fuck. It's, no, it's, I tried. You sent me a video one time, and I, I oh, tried. No, no, to no. That was that was its own. That was a debacle in itself. That was for other reasons. That was Joe Rogan. <laughs> no, it's it, it's it's funny. It, we were we were talking about a long time ago how your your perception of the world is its closest analog most of the time ends up being like right wing conspiracy theory bunker people. Like they like the world like wraps or it's like the universe wraps back around at the other side and it just connects. <laughs> I had a conversation with somebody at the beginning of the project where uh, somebody 
um, she had gotten into an argument with somebody who was, um, I think an anarchist. I'm not entirely sure. I can't fully remember. And she was like, Alicia, are, are there Republicans here? Are these people Republicans? I just didn't think <laughs> that you would have Republicans in your group. And like, of course, there's like one or two, but like, it's like, I, I was like, no, hun, they're like, they're way, way far left. This person you're talking to is just further left than you could ever dream. And she's like, okay, no, but I'm really confused. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, um, I think the other thing is like, I am from Texas. Like I'm genuinely from Texas. Yep. Um, so there's some things like, like gun control that I get, I can't really tow the, the party line on, you know? Gun control is super messy statistically anyway. There's there's way too much. There's almost too much evidence in gun control. Like, there's too much. Because too much of it is fringe. The fact that gun violence almost always results in gun death means that the data is super polarized uh, in a way that I really do have a hard time commenting on most of the time. Can you summarize it in more detail? Um, what the evidence or my stance on it? The evidence. The evidence is that more than half of gun deaths are preventable (laughs) through better mental health care, which we will never have. Um, that you would have to ban all guns to meaningfully reduce violent murder otherwise, because almost every firearm that exists can be used in the perpetration of a murder. But at the same time, if you reduce the number of guns the amount of gun crime goes down. It's just an expensive, laborious process. Mm-hmm. Um, and on balance, I think that the way, I mean, my my effective stance on it, which I've had for quite a while, is that it should be, like, I understand that, I understand the argument that if you make guns hard to get, only bad people have guns. But if uh, plenty of deaths are preventable just by making those guns um, <laughs> by putting those guns in the hands of more responsible human beings, and you can force people to be more responsible with guns than they currently are. Mm-hmm. Um, having a gun should be like having a pilot license. Mm-hmm. You should need an advocate. You should need training to be able to have a gun. Uh, the mm-hmm. idea that we don't know where every gun with a serial number in the United States is located is stupid. They should have to be registered like cars. Um, and they should probably have insurance to go along with them. And I know that sounds highly obfuscatory and governmentally oriented in a way that no one would ever get behind. Um, but, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with dangerous shit, that's the only way that we know how to deal with it. So, Yeah, that does seem like a sensible stance because, like, I do think fewer guns means less gun violence. And, like, I think it's hard to argue that people, uh, harder to argue that people don't get into more altercations when, like, imagine, imagine for, if you will, if I had a gun, how much worse everybody else's life would be because of just how much, purely how much more aggressive I would be because of how my, the full sense of safety it would give me. That, that part depends on your personality. There are a lot of people who uh, it's one of the one of the most interesting and it's part of the reason why I'm not necessarily in favor of gun control is in gun banning, but specifically in control of who has them and 
the amount of experience required to wield them, the proficiency you have to wield, uh, is that uh, concealed carry permit holders commit fewer crimes than the police on a per yeah, capita basis. I would believe that. Um, yeah. and that's, and that's keeping in mind, of course, you know, present company not needing to be reminded of this, that, uh, the police aren't exactly keen to report, um, <laughs> all instances of malfeasance, concealed carry permit holders per capita still commit fewer crimes. Um, <laughs> and whether they prevent crimes or not, what that means is that the people who are conscientious enough to bother to do concealed carry are people that you want armed. Um, because it it puts them in a mindset that makes them more controlled and state about their actions because they are aware more in they are aware more presently of the way the situations they're in can escalate. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean I just don't know because like I do live in Chicago and remember when you visited and we went to Target and we went under the train tracks? I do. To get there. So, a friend of a friend lives on in that area and they just had to move because there were three gun deaths apparently quite recently i didn't even hear i normally know uh because i'm a, a crazy person when a gun death happens in my when a shooting happens in my general uh yeah. perimeter but this one i didn't hear about for a while and it's like um my friend also lives over there and he um there's a guy who used to sell socks like he would sell uh like, I guess he would get packages of socks and he would sell them, like, cheaply, illegally, like, on the side of the road. And he got killed for his sock selling business. And, like, it's just like... Uh, Again, mental health care would take care of half of these cases, let's say. I don't think so, actually. I, I don't know about half of them because I think, like, a lot of these are structural reasons. Like, first of all, like, a lot of the shootings are, are gang shootings, which is economically motivated largely, right? Yeah. It's, like, partly economically motivated and it's partly an honor culture thing, which, as Southerners, you know, we can kind of understand. Then, like, the sock guy is also, like, hey, like, you're in my sock selling area. And like that, that was competition for the location where this guy was selling socks. Like that's what this this guy's sock murder was about. Like it was about him selling socks. So I don't think that that's a mental health issue. I think that's a like holy fuck. People can't even like like talk about crushing entrepreneurship and not supporting it. Like yeah, if you. A don't even let a guy fucking sell socks by the side of the road. What is this country coming to? I have no idea. That's why I turn to you in these times, Felicia. Because <laughs> you actually read about it. Not as much as people seem to think, which is starting to become a problem. Eh, I get all of my news from podcasts, so... If Joe Rogan doesn't book a guest, I don't know about it, so... At this point, I get most of my news from people shouting at me about it. I can imagine. I mean, plenty of people seem to want you to know. That's for yeah. sure. So that's how my news is is structured right now, is just keeping up with what people think it's important for me to know. Like the No Dakota Access Pipeline protests where they were spraying people in freezing weather with... Uh, that was kind of a dick move. Oh my god, so horrifying, right? I just... <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> 
that's straight up like that is fascism. <laughs> like that if I if I had to define fascism and I had had this example ready, I would be like, it's when people are literally freezing and you tear gas them and spray them with water. Oh my god. And like the symbolic horror of being sprayed with water in an effort to save your water oh, sources. It's it's yeah, no, it's um oh. no, something oh. else. Yeah, so and and the stuff that I think is happening around it, I don't know how effective it's gonna be and I, I really don't know how to like stop this um stop this from happening because it's like um viable economic uh viable economic alternatives are the only thing that is going to stop it for you mean on an energy level i mean from i mean from the standpoint of stopping the pipeline as it stands it's one of the ironies of the trump presidency that i'm seeing a mile away is the opec countries were trying to um they were they were boosting oil production to keep the price of gas low for political reasons. Yeah. They're going to let that up and cut production and the price of oil is going to go up and the economy is going to get better. And it's going to be because oil is suddenly going to be viable again and all of our hydrocarbon production is going to become profitable while Trump is president and that's going to have nothing to do with him loosening environmental relation regulations it would have happened under obama it's just going to mm-hmm. be more profitable now mm-hmm. I, yeah i wonder about that because i think um yeah i i do have to do some some deeper thinking and analysis of that um oil's going to go back up in price if the opec countries will it to do so, it will yeah, do so. yeah 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 i don't know what that what that necessarily leads to um, it, like, it, I think there are a lot of consequences to, of that. It leads to wanting that pipeline done as rapidly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, this is a stall-out tactic from a corporate perspective. They will want the pipeline done if gas hits $70 a barrel, and they will not put up with the... Uh, basically, what I'm saying is if OPEC cuts production, there's a solid chance they will find another way to route the pipe. Or they will find some other thing to do because this trying to get this done while it is under this much social pressure, they have the means to wait it out, but it will start gotcha. costing them so much money to do so that they will, they will find some other way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Here's to hoping anyway. Yeah. The only stuff I've seen for helping is to um is calling campaigns which i think probably make sense to kind of push and promote and then um like wish lists for the camp like i saw a medic uh like a wish list for the for the medical uh people at the at the camp at the sacred stone camp they have a list of things that they need um that i think is on amazon and then there's also a um just a generic a uh, wish list which has things like generators and you know other things that you need to survive a winter cooking gear yeah. um stuff like that yeah and so, uh, for what it's worth i mean don't don't read my <laughs> read my take on economic alter- uh, economic activities um fully cynically the the protesters have to be there 
for that to matter. Get routed. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't like you can't you can't just say, oh, the economy will fix it. There is a degree of activism required for that to matter enough for them to do it. Um, So So in that case, if that's true, then just supporting them by having um, the other the other protests like throughout um, different cities in the country, like the support protests and um, talking about it and sending them um, generators and cookware and things like that is a valid approach. I I imagine it'll pan out. I, I, I think it will end up panning out. Obviously, I'm no protest expert but i'm a white i am a white guy but that does that seems that seems like it might be i don't know what OPEC's schedule was for cutting production i assume it's sometime this year or next year rather i would have to i would have to actually do some research on that but um but no there's there's hope there's hope it'll actually matter it's just that the price that oil is right now i don't think it does there's some interesting uh background on tribal sovereignty which makes you realize that like this country is not like what you think it is from the outset because there are actually kind of countries within this country and I just hadn't really taken the time to think about it like that but their their legal status changes like every you know 30 to 50 years there's like a total um totally different approach and um to to dealing with um Native American tribes um, in the U.S. It's um, it's kind of wild, and you watch this like whole long history of brutality against um, against like the people who were here first, and it's just kind of you you realize that you live in a colony but i think that's what i learned like reading that i was like oh this is a colony where i live is a colony and actually even though like i'm here because uh like my family's country was colonized like i am also a kind of a colonist because like that's what i that's true you're like a second order colonist yeah right right they the british went us. to you and then you jumped from india like it was mhm that's weird. It's really interesting. There's there's some interesting relationship of India to all of this because India's um, fortunes changed pretty dramatically after the Civil War uh, because you couldn't produce cotton in the states in the same way that you had been. So, and Britain really needed uh, raw cotton. So look and no cl- further cotton. then. Mm-hmm. It does seem weird that they went. Was there a specific reason Britain went so far as India to form one of their major other colonies? Like, was Africa Uh, that destitute? No, Africa was not destitute at all. I know, that's Uh, that's what makes it weird that they would travel so far. Did India have, like, specific raw resources that were not available nearby? Well, yeah, and, like, uh, there were also methods of production that were in India that were in other places. And so a lot of, so, okay, so for forever there was the Silk Road, right, essentially, where Europeans would be able to get goods from China and India, right? Yeah. Um, through the Silk Road. And that went through the Ottoman Empire, essentially. So the Ottoman Empire was getting goods That's, to, okay, that's why, right, Ottoman yeah. Empire. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot, they're used to be a wall there 
Yeah, totally. That That's exactly it. There okay. used to be a wall there. And then, um, you know, sea exploration and the opening up of sea routes. And, like, that's one of the reasons that control over the Middle East has always been so contentious. And um, control over Egypt and the sea routes that go, uh, that connect you to India is because Europeans have been relying on Indian goods for a long time. Yeah. And interested in Indian goods for a long time. So they stop going through the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire collapses and they have a direct route to India. Yeah. No, that makes sense. No, this is all stuff I'm sure I learned in a history class at some point. Just don't remember. No. Actually, there's no reason that because the way that they teach this is bullshit because they don't want to admit seriously, like uh, like one of the things that I never learned about the transatlantic slave trade until just now is that India was a point on that trade route. Seriously, because for a while, people in Africa would not accept British British cotton or British uh, cloth, they wanted to be paid in Indian cloth because, like, the manufacturing was so much better. And then there's this whole conversation about industrialization and the Great Divergence, right, where they're like, oh, well, why did India, China, and the Ottoman Empire, like, not keep up with, uh, keep up with Europeans in terms of standard of living after uh, after Europeans started using fossil fuels. And there are all kinds of theories about why this happened. But like, how did European standard of living improve? They started being able to get things, manufactured goods from China and India. That's what made their lives better. Jesus. <laughs> like, so like... <laughs> So you have to kind of wonder, like, I feel like it kind of erases colonization also. It erases a lot of local things. Like with the Ottoman Empire, like, obviously they couldn't take tolls anymore. That happened at the same time, like, in the same, like, 300 years, right, as uh, fossil fuel production. They couldn't, they couldn't, they weren't, you know, managing the Silk Road. Um, so there's like a major source of income for this region that's just kind of like less important and kind of gone. And, um, they try to behave like people don't have like Europeans are invented, organized manufacturing processes. And like, that's not true because they had to have a way to produce fucking silk for the silk road. They, they did that like with factories, they had like company towns where for producing silk and just like nobody knows about that so i don't think you've learned anything in history class in conclusion no i feel like (laughs) i knew slightly more but maybe not maybe not to that degree but no i vaguely remember some of that no the problem with learning about the transatlantic trade as having other points on is then you can't call it triangle trade which is the only reason anybody remembers what it is because it's a shape and that's easy no, to it's, remember. No, it's more of a diamond. Yeah, that's trait. bullshit. No one, no one can remember that. It's too complicated. Well, I mean, maybe you could remember it because you like, you know, like you dig for diamonds in the ground. You what? expropriate the wealth from other places. I thought that was an African out. thing, though. I thought the blood diamonds <laughs> oh, were African. Gross. Gross. I think I haven't looked at it, but I saw I saw an ad the other day being like, hey, you're not going to marry your girlfriend, but you should definitely still buy her a diamond. 
I know you're not buying her a diamond because you're not going to marry her, but maybe you should just because a diamond is forever. You're going to love her forever, right? Give her a diamond. Diamond. It means I, forever. I, I don't even know what. I don't. I have no idea what you just told me to do besides buy a diamond. So I guess the ad worked, but the underlying yeah. reasons are entirely mysterious. Yeah, it's so. Uh, it's so funny because I guess people aren't buying engagement rings anymore. At the same rate. Is that just because people aren't getting engaged? Yeah. I thought the divorce rate fixed that. I thought that was how the marriage industry was going to keep up now that no one's marrying is the 10% that do marry get married seven times. <laughs> I guess that's still a 30% drop in revenue. I feel like I know plenty of married people. Yeah, it's not as big a deal as it's being made out to be. There is definitely a glut of people that are not working that were working in previous generations, but that could very much just be an experiential gap that it just doing skilled labor takes more time now than it used to. And I'm willing to wait that out. Wait, I'm confused about the relationship between those two things. Um, the idea that our entire generation is just permanent children that we don't get mm. married and we don't get real jobs and that kind of shit. It's entirely possible that, um, that skilled labor in the modern workforce just requires so much more time that on average your um your average millennial as the last 50 years where the people have been called um in order to have a skilled job you have to have so much experience or training that it's of course pushing the age back on all that stuff um <laughs> but as far as marriage goes people are people are still getting married it's just that if you're going to wait until you have a stable job, which is smart, you should probably wait until you have a stable job until you get married. Uh, of course, it's going to push that back. But we're also expecting to live longer. So it all balances out. Oh, yeah, that's true. I am planning to get married. For tax reasons. Of course. The traditional yeah. the traditional reason. It just makes more sense. Of course. That's what it says, right? on the. Uh, that's what it says <laughs> on the anniversary cards. It just makes sense. All right. All right. I need another cup of coffee, and uh, i got to stand up to do that, which is a laborious, painful process. So, um, are, are you meditating? Have you been able to meditate at all? Um. Yes. I've not been doing it as much as I should have, but I've also, I think I just might be entering a phase in my life when I need nine hours of sleep a day. Totally. Um, and I'm just not, I'm, I, I keep denying that fact at my peril. Um, yeah. So, yeah. do you want to do like? Because I need to do like at least half an hour of meditation a day for probably the next like two weeks at least. So, if you want, we could do something dumb where we're like, let's meditate for an hour a day every day. That's too many hours. That's that's <laughs> too much meditation. I need to be actually asleep during that time. I can get all the meditation benefits I need out of fifteen minutes. It's I need the sleep on either side of it. Gotcha. Cool. So if you want to have like a mad sleep party, that would, I can do that. Let's do that. Let's do that when you come here. Just stay at my house for a bit. And we could we could sleep a lot. We could sleep all the time. That sounds good. I'm all in favor of that. I mean, I have yeah. a, I have a day blocked out. Uh, Wednesday, I expected to be at your place. I think that's the thirtieth. Oh, okay. So. Okay. So, yeah, cool. That that's good to know. Day. Good to know. Yeah. Oh my god. But I have a big project due the day after that, so I probably can't. But Solid. 
All right, well, I'll double up for you. <laughs> okay. Peace. All right. See you Bye. later.